We are continuing our study in the life of David, and David is now in the time of his life where he's returning to something that was stolen from him. If you guys remember last week on the life of David, uh, David had been exiled by his own son into the wilderness, his son Absalom. His son Absalom committed treason and tried to perform this coup d'etat on his father's kingdom. Tried to take the kingdom as his own. See, Absalom was a crafty man and uh, was able to swing the hearts uh, of many people in this short amount of time so that he can perform this mutiny against his own dad. And then David, uh, he was exiled into the, into the wilderness. As he's on his way out, you remember Shemaiah met him on the way to curse him and to tell him, David, you're a man of blood, a man of war, and this is what you deserve. And David didn't even have his men kill Shimei for cursing him on the way out. But David here in this time of his life is just fully submitted to what the Lord has for him. And Absalom, he would then in complete disgusting defiance, set up this tent on top of the palace there and take David's concubines and commit adultery with them. And then to completely wipe out his father, he had these two counselors, one named Hushai, and the other Ahithophel. And he asked both of them of their advice on how he can destroy his father as he was approaching the wilderness. And Ahithophel in his wisdom said, attack David right now as he's fleeing and he's wounded. And Hushai said, no, 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 wait till you gather all your armies together of Israel and then go and attack him yourself. And Absalom liked that idea that he himself would go out to battle because then he would seem to be the victor. But what do we remember about David? That he's a man of the wilderness. And so Hushai's advice was actually supposed to help David because Hushai was actually still loyal to David and he wanted to protect David. So he gave Absalom this bad advice. And so now, as David's armies are there in the wilderness, we begin our chapter 18 in Second Samuel, verse 1. And David numbered the people who were with him and set captains of thousands and captains of hundreds over them. Then David sent out one-third of the people under the hand of Job, one-third under the hand of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the hand of Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said to the people, I also will surely go out with you myself. But the people answered, You shall not go out, for if we flee away, they will not care about us, nor if half of us die, will they care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us now, 
for you are now more help to us in the city. And here's the irony of King David wanting to go fight this battle with his people. You see, if you remember, originally David, in the time when all the kings were supposed to be out at battle, he stayed back at his palace. And it was then when he was kicking back, relaxing, not taking responsibility for what he was supposed to be doing, that he fell into sin with Bathsheba. He looked down and he saw the woman bathing and then committed adultery and murder against her husband. Now the irony here after David is a broken man is that he is willing now to go fight. But in the people's wisdom, they say, look, right now is not the time though anymore. For he was like the, on the chessboard, the, the king, and he was too valuable to be lost right now. Now, perhaps now, that his son Absalom is in the enemy's camp. David himself may have even thought, maybe if I go out there, I can protect my son Absalom. Because David does have a deep love for his son Absalom. Now in verse four, then the king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood beside the gate and all the people went out by hundreds and thousands. Now I want you to picture as we go through this two chapters, just the visual of, of these armies going out and, and battling. To, to me, as I read these chapters in Second Samuel, it's like a movie. It's very graphic. It's very detailed, very violent at times. And the Bible sometimes can get so interesting as you read it as this account of this man's life, King David, and all the the drama that was involved with it, just like in real life. So now, again, after all these men are, are going out to battle, it says in verse five, now the king had commanded Joab, Abishai and Ittai saying, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave all the captains orders concerning Absalom. See, David didn't want Absalom dead despite all the treason, the betrayal and the rebellion of Absalom. He, he still was hoping that somehow they could bring Absalom back alive and unharmed. And then in verse six, so the people went out into the field of battle against Israel. And the battle was in the woods of Ephraim. The people of Israel were overthrown before the servants of David and a great slaughter of 20,000 took place there that day. For the battle there was scattered over the face of the whole countryside and the woods devoured more people that day than the sword devoured. Wow, so here's this scene now of all these thousands of men going out to war and the men of Israel who were following after Absalom began 
to, to lose. They're, they're losing all their numbers. It says over 20,000 were slain that day. And then they're, they're fighting in this forest. Now, this forest had to be full of, of probably pits and stumps and trees and these great bushes because the men, it says, that they were devoured by the forest more so than the sword. So people were probably running into these uh, different nature things that were causing them to, to die and causing them to get even possibly caught by the enemy. So there's this very, like, Christopher Nolan can direct this part of the of the book and just probably kill it at directing all this crazy war that's going on. And then verse 9, Then Absalom met the servants of David. And Absalom rode on a mule. The mule went under the thick boughs of a great terebinth tree, and his head caught in the terebinth. So he was left hanging between heaven and earth, and the mule which was under him went on. So we see Absalom here. Probably as, the, as his enemies are pushing back his own team, at a certain point he's on this mule and he begins to possibly flee. And as he's riding, his great hair that was part of his attractiveness, his big old uh, curly hair that would just ride with, along with him, as he's riding, gets caught in this terebinth tree. It's like this giant oak tree with a lot of branches uh, that would be protruding out of it. And so as he's riding under this thing, his hair is so big that it gets caught in the actual tree itself and the mule gets away from him and he's left there like hanging, probably struggling now to, to breathe even as he's being held up by his very hair and probably just now in a state of complete panic as he's hanging there, it says between heaven and earth. And then in verse 10, now a certain man saw it and told Joab and said, I just saw Absalom hanging in a terebinth tree. So Joab said to the man who told him, you just saw him? And why did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have given you 10 shekels of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, Though I were to receive a thousand shekels of silver in my hand, I would not raise my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, saying, Beware, lest anyone touch the young man Absalom. Otherwise, I would have dealt falsely against my own life. For there is nothing hidden from the king, and you yourself would have set yourself against me. See, Joab here, he, he does have a higher rank than this servant. And he's not afraid to go against David's wishes to keep Absalom safe. So this servant wisely said, I'm not going to be the one to, to kill Absalom. You yourself would have killed me under the king's orders if I did that. And Joab here, he does show a very retributive a very vengeful position towards Absalom's treason. And then in verse 14, 
Then Joab said, I cannot linger with you. So he's like, all right, I'm, I'm done talking to you. And he took three spears in his hand and thrust them through Absalom's heart while he was still alive in the midst of the terebinth tree. And ten young men who bore Joab's armor surrounded Absalom and struck and killed him. So there's Absalom hanging in this tree by his hair. And Joab, not listening to King David's orders, with his vengeance of, of what Absalom had done to the king, takes these spears and pierces Absalom right through the heart. And then I could picture the, his Joab's armor bearers, and something to notice that he has 10 men who they said bear his armor. So to me, that's kind of his own special private security group that he's got with him at all times, these 10 guys. And them seeing Joab now striking Absalom take suit, and all 11 of these men begin to just completely destroy Absalom as he's there hanging in the tree by his hair. It's a very graphic scene. Absalom was a man who committed some of the most heinous treason against the nation of Israel and against King David. And because of such, he was met with such hatred. So he died. And now in verse 16, so Joab blew the trumpet and the people returned from pursuing Israel. For Joab held back the people. Now, as Joab sounds the trumpet to bring everyone home, it says that as they were returning, Joab held back the people. See, Absalom being the head of the rebellion, now that he's dead, this would caused the rebellion to dis dissipate. And Joab at this point was stopping the fighting because they were fighting their own Israelites. So there's, he's basically stopping people from continuing on and, and killing their own brothers because it was the nation of Judah against the nation of Israel, which is still, they're all technically Israelites. And now as they're on their way back in verse 17, and they took Absalom and cast him into a large pit in the woods and laid a very large heap of stones over him. Then all Israel fled, everyone to his tent. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up a pillar for himself, which is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name. And to this day, it is called Absalom's Monument. Now today in Israel, there is still a site known as Absalom's Monument at the bottom of the Mount of Olives. And people will throw stones as they pass in a kind of a vengeance for David. Josephus, he even mentions that the... Uh, monument of Absalom listed here in the Bible that it existed at a certain point in time. He writes about it in his writings, Josephus the historian. 
Now, whether the one at the bottom of the Mount of Olives that they say is Absalom's monument to this day is that exact one, I don't know. A lot of people are very uh, suspicious of it. But something to note about this monument that Absalom made is he had no sons. Even though he did have sons, uh, the Bible lists them, but he says, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. So perhaps they were killed, or he didn't think highly of them. But he created this legacy for himself, a monument. And that's what I, uh, we often see in our life. Monuments, monuments of men. We see what people want to be remembered for. When we look at skyscrapers, we look at statues, we look at foundations and, and businesses and pursuits. Sometimes what we're looking at is somebody's legacy and what they want to be remembered for. And as you go now and you look at some of the, the greatest sculptures that were ever sculpted of men, and you look at that painting, that artifact, whatever it is, it's being destroyed by time itself. Year by year, it's getting chipped away, decaying, falling apart. People are stealing from it. These monuments that men and women make nowadays, well, from the beginning of time, they don't last. They're only here for a short period of time. And it's all going to be destroyed. There are no lasting legacies. The only legacy that lasts is one that's eternal. One that goes beyond this life. And the only legacy that can do that is the ones that are abiding in Christ. What is your legacy? What do you want to be remembered for? What do you hope and wish that people will say about you on your funeral? If somebody asks you, or I'm sorry, if somebody asks your children or your wife, your, friend, your close friends, your coworkers, your boss, what they were to think about you, what would that person say? See, these are the things that many times are either going to be temporary or eternal. So I would pray that we as Christian students would continue to look for those things that are going to have an eternal legacy and pursue that. Pursue Christ with all our heart. For we have one life and it will soon be passed and only what's done for Christ will last. I think Absalom forgot that. He was more concerned about getting his in the moment. And it led to his death. And in verse 19, 
Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said, Let me run now and take news to the king, how the Lord has avenged him of his enemies. And Joab said to him, You shall not take news this day, for you shall take news another day. But today you shall take no news, because the king's son is dead. Now, here Joab prohibits Ahimaaz from taking news to the king. And the reason being is because Ahimaaz is a priest. And we'll see right after that, Joab does allow this other man, a Cushite, to go and tell the king the news. Now in verse 21, Then Joab said to the Cushite, Go, tell the king what you have seen. So the Cushite bowed himself to Joab and ran. And Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said to Joab again, But whatever happens, please let me also run after the Cushite. So Joab said, Why will you run, my son, since you have no news ready? But whatever happens, he said, let me run. So he said to him, run. Then Ahimaaz ran by way of the plain and outran the Cushite. Now, what I see here with this this young man who's outrunning the other one is uh, Joab, in his wisdom of how the king would handle each man, was trying to keep Ahimaaz away from giving the king the, this bad news. And Ahimaaz, what he's doing here is he's actually running without preparing himself. He's got no news to really give the king. Later on, as both of the men come, he, he only has half a message. He doesn't have the full message to give to the king, which the Cushite does bear to the king. And sometimes that's what we do as we run ahead of God's timing. We run ahead of whatever pursuit that we desire. We run ahead of God's, his spirit and his timing. And sometimes we, we don't have yet even the vision or, or the message of what God wants to do in that certain situation. So we need to be patient on waiting on God's timing. Remember how the disciples, they had to wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit to come upon them before they were about to go out and turn the world upside down. We need to have that anointing. Now in verse 24, Now David was sitting between the two gates and the watchman went up to the roof over the gate to the wall, lifted his eyes and looked and there was a man running alone. Then the watchman cried out and told the king and the king said, if he is alone, there is news in his mouth. And he came rapidly and drew near. Then the watchman saw another man running and the watchman called to the gatekeeper and said, there is another man running, running alone. And the king said, he also brings news. So the watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimaaz, 
the son of Zadok. And the king said, he is a good man and comes with good news. So Ahimaaz called out and said to the king, all is well. Then he bowed down to his face to the earth before the king and said, blessed be the Lord God, your God, who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my Lord, the king. The king said, is the young man Absalom safe? Ahimez answered, when Joab sent the king's servants and me, your servant, I saw a great tumult, but I did not know what it was about. You see, he had, he had no news to David's main concern, which would be, have been Absalom's son. I'm sorry, David's son, Absalom. And that was what David really wanted to know. We still see the heart of David as a father longing for his son to return to him. And then in verse 30, and the king said, turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. Just then the Cushite came and the Cushite said, there is good news, my lord the king, for the Lord has avenged you this day of all those who rose against you. And the king said to the Cushite, is the young man Absalom safe? So the Cushite answered, may the enemies of my Lord, the king, and all who rise against you to do harm be like that young man. By saying this, he's pronouncing Absalom's death to King David. He's wishing that all men who would rise up against King David would be slaughtered as Absalom was. And at this point, the knife had to go into David's heart emotionally. It says in verse 33, then the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said thus, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died in your place. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. See how real this moment is in David's life. His own son, after betraying him, probably would have even killed his own father, is now mourned and wished to have survived instead of David himself. David here is fooling the full effects of the consequences of sin in our lives. David was cursed by God himself to have violence in his house, to have one of his own rise up against him because of his sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. And David is now reaping what he has sown. And David here, he's continuing in his brokenness, continually submitting to the Lord and continually broken. This is not the highlight of David's life. 
This is David's returning to his kingdom. Now in chapter 19. And Joab was told, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard it said that day, the, the king is grieved for his son. And the people stole back into the city that day as people who are ashamed still away when they flee in battle. You see, this should have been a time of celebration that the, the people of Judah, those who were loyal to David, were now victorious. But their leader, because he was mourning now in this time when they should have been celebrating victory, this leader had a great effect, King David, on those who followed him. When the, the people who were thinking they were going to be rejoicing saw that their king was mourning, they too followed suit. And it must have been a confusing day. And it, it shows us, though, how much impact leaders have on those who follow them. It's a message for anyone who desires to, to be a good leader is to be responsible with our actions and how we represent ourselves because we are leading people. And we have a huge responsibility as Christians to lead people away from sin, to lead people into hope, into peace, into joy, into love. And there's so many avenues that nowadays people are, are, are seeking to, to lead people on social media and, and in school and work. There, there's a lot of different ways. And are you leading people in these ways of, of the kingdom? Are you leading people in ways of humility and righteousness and truth and love and not uh, spreading fear and hatred towards our brothers and showing that we love our enemies and showing that we are against sin that we're against racism, that we're against uh, illegal activity, that we're against rioting? Are we taking our Christian stance responsibly? And sometimes that means not saying anything. Sometimes that means holding back when you're supposed to and knowing when God's telling you to speak knowing when God tells you that you are to proclaim truth. I digress. In verse four, but the king covered his face and the, the king cried out with a loud voice, oh, my son, Absalom. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, today, you have disgraced all your servants who today have saved your life. The lives of your sons and daughters, the lives of your wives, the lives of your concubines, in that you love your enemies and hate your friends. 
For you have declared today that you regard neither princes nor servants. For today I perceive that if Absalom had lived and all of us had died today, then it would have pleased you well. So here's Joab now, David's commander. And he's quite a, a brute, quite a violent man. It was someone who showed vengeance in their life and, and murder at times, Joab. But at the, on another side of Joab, he has a very strong loyalty to David and to Israel, to Judah. And Joab was a man who had a lot of wisdom in battle and on, on leadership. He was a man of action who people were afraid of at times. People were scared to cross him. And here he goes to King David and he rebukes King David and tells him, what are you doing, David? You're, you're here mourning after we just came back in victory. And you're, you're making the whole nation feel as if we had done wrong when we fought for you out there in the battlefield today. And we were victorious for you. And now that we're coming back as victors, you're making us feel as if we're enemies to our own nation. You see, David wasn't concerned here for his family, the nation of Israel, and to those who were loyal to him. And one of the rebukes that Joab told him is, you love your enemies and hate your friends. Now you see the first part of that, loving your enemies, later on in the, in the New Testament, this is a commandment that Jesus told us to do, was to love our enemies. But we also still have to love our friends too. We have to love both. We have to love our neighbor. We have to love our enemy. You see, when we're standing in that moment of just argument of war of whatever political social economic whatever debate is going on and we're standing right there in the middle of it and we're seeing or maybe we're on a side of it and we're seeing people going back and forth jesus says to love your neighbor he says to love your enemy I think that's something that our nation needs right now. That we need as people is to love one another. And to make sure we are taking care of our family. See right here, David is failing to do that. He was focused on the loss of his son, which I'm sure was a completely tragic and terrible heartbreak that David was going through, but he was about to then throw away all of his other children out the window because if he was to continue this way, the entire kingdom would turn against him and his family would have been destroyed along with him. So David needed to have a bit of a change of heart. Now in verse seven, it says, now therefore arise, go out and speak comfort to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go out, no one will stay with you this night. And that will be worse for you than all the evil that has befallen you from your mouth, from your youth 
until now. Then the king arose and sat in the gate. And they told all the people, saying, There is the king sitting in the gate. So all the people came before the king. For everyone of Israel had fled to his tent. So David now, following the wise words of Joab, as Joab told him, look, if you don't go back to your people now and start congratulating them and being joyful, then it's going to be way worse for you if you continue to mourn. And so David snaps out of it. And he goes and he sits at the gate, as kings would do. And now as the people see the king sitting at the gate, they, they come out of their tents before they were hiding. But now they're following a man who's broken, a man who has messed up in his life, but he's trying to do right. And sometimes that's all people need to see in order to start following. Someone who is a man after God's own heart, making the right decision. And so they come out and their hearts are turned and returned to this king, King David. Now in verse nine, not all the people were in a dispute throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, the king saved us from the hand of our enemies. He delivered us from the hand of the Philistines. And now he has fled from the land because of Absalom. Now these people of Israel it's referring to, these people are the, the nation of Israel. It's 12 people in one nation. But when it specifically says the people of Israel, uh, it's usually referring to the 10 north tribes. And then there was two more tribes, with, with, including Judah, who would have been more closer to the heart of, of David. So now all the tribes of Israel, they're gathered here. And many of them had turned against David. And now they're talking about, well, what are we to do now that the king is, is coming back? And it says in verse 10, But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, has died in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing back the king? You see, some of the people of the Israelites were not even concerned about David coming back. They weren't talking about it. There was uh, certain people of the tribes of Israel who were cold and indifferent to King David returning as king. And in verse 11, So King David sent to Zadok and Abiathar the priests, saying, Speak to the elders of Judah, saying, Why are you the last to bring the king back to his house? And since the words of all Israel have come to the king to his very house. You are my brethren, you are my bone and my flesh. Why then are you the last to bring me, bring back the king? And say to you, Amasa, are you not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me and more also, if you are not commander of the army before me continually, in place of Joab. 
So now this letter that is being sent to the Israelites is actually going to be a sigh of relief for many because people now may have been concerned that King David would come back with the vengeance for those who had betrayed him. See, many people started to follow uh, his son Absalom. And so now David is sending back the, the priests and saying, hey, I want you to speak these to the elders of Judah and let the people know that I'm coming back and that I'm letting them know right away, you guys are my family. You're my bone and my flesh. And then he tells Amasa, who was actually Absalom's commander, he says, look, Amasa, God do so to me more and more also if I don't keep you as commander alongside with, with Joab. So Joab here, is, he's kind of getting a, a promotion. And Amasa would be now the, another commander. It says in verse 14, So he swayed the hearts of all the men of Judah, just as the heart of one man, so that they sent this word to the king, return you and all your servants. So now the people write back to King David and they say, all right, David, come back. Come be our king. And the nation of Israel is welcoming back the return of King David. And you look at David's life and how much David has gone through at this point from the time that he was just a shepherd boy fighting off the, the lion and the bear that came and attacked his sheep to when Goliath came against him and, he, and God gave him victory then. And then later on, after God had promised him the, the throne, when Saul came against David, and Saul many times even actually tried to kill David, that God still protected David throughout that time. And David dared not strike the Lord's anointed, but just trusted in God and God's timing until finally God elevated David into the place of the king where David didn't have to fight his way to be king, but God had sovereignly planned it out that King Saul died in battle and then David was elected king over Israel. And to go from being in that place of just great prosperity to falling into sin, to reaping what he sowed and to then having his son Absalom later on in his life rising up himself to push David back out into the wilderness, right back where he started multiple times. And there David probably had to meet with the Lord and say, here I am again, God. Here we are. What do you want to do? What do you want us to do now? What do I need to learn? We need to have those moments in our life where we self-reflect and start asking God, what do you want to do? What do you want me to do? What am I not learning? What, what do I need to be learning in this season that you're allowing me to go through again? Or maybe it's a new season. God, what do you want me to learn from this? In these next few verses, 15 through 18, 
these men, they go to meet David as he is returning on the way, including Shemaiah, the guy who had cursed David as he was leaving, who called David a, a bloodthirsty man, a man of blood, and cursed David as he was leaving. He comes to, to beg forgiveness. And then Mephibosheth and parts of his family too. Remember Mephibosheth was the man who was lame in his feet from Saul's household, who was one of Saul's sons. And David had grace on Mephibosheth and let Mephibosheth eat at his table. But skip down to verse 19. Or at the end of, of verse 18, actually. Let's go ahead and start with verse 18. It says, Then a ferry boat went across to carry over the king's household and to do what he thought good. Now Shemaiah, the son of Gera, fell down before the king when he had crossed the Jordan. Then the king, then he said to the king, Do not let my lord impute iniquity to me, or remember what wrong your servant did on the day that my lord the king left Jerusalem, that the king should take it to heart. For I, your servant, know that I have sinned. Therefore, here I am, the first to come today of all the house of Joseph, to go down to meet my lord the king. So here, what we see is Shemaiah coming back to King David as King David's returning to his kingdom. Shemaiah's like, oh, snap. I remember what I told King David when he left. I cursed him to his face. and He didn't do anything. Perhaps he's coming back and my head's now going to get the chopping block. So he's going and just begging for forgiveness. And in verse 21, But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, answered and said, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this, because he cursed the Lord's anointed? And David said, What have I to do with you, sons of Zeruiah, that you should be adversaries to me today? Shall any man be put to death today in Israel? For do I not know that today I am king over Israel? Therefore the king said to Shimei, You shall not die. And the king swore to him. Here we see David being very merciful to Shimei. An attribute of David is his mercy. An attribute of God that he, he got a lot of mercy from God. Now in verse 24. Now Mephibosheth, the son of Samuel, came down to meet the king. And he had not cared for his feet, nor trimmed his mustache, nor washed his clothes from the day that the king departed until the day that he returned in peace. And that sounds like some of us in quarantine right now. I'm just kidding. So Mephibosheth here, he's, he's kind of tore up after the king had left. He didn't take care of himself anymore in this kind of fashion of mourning. So it was when he had come to Jerusalem to meet the king, that the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? And he answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me. 
For your servant said, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go to the king because your servant is lame. And he has slandered your servant to my Lord, the king. But my Lord, the king is like an angel of God. Therefore do what is good in your eyes. For all my father's house were but dead men before my Lord, the king. Yet you set your servant among those who eat at your own table. Therefore, what right have I still to cry out any more to the king? So remember Mephibosheth was this man who David had mercy on and let him eat at his table, even though he was part of Saul's household after Saul had died. And Mephibosheth is now coming to King David and telling him, hey, King David, I'm, I would have gone with you. But one of my servants, he, he left off with my donkey and he lied about me. He said that I, I was no longer loyal to you. And that wasn't true. And he says, but look, whatever you do, it's, it's all right by me. And now in verse 29. So the king said to him, why do you speak any more of your matters? I have said, you and Ziba divide the land. Then Mephibosheth said to the king, rather let him take it all. And as much as my lord, the king has come back in peace to his own house. So see right here, Mephibosheth is saying, look, like I don't even care what this liar said about me. He can have whatever I have. I'm just glad you're back, king. And there's the lessons here of grace and mercy. You see, the difference between grace and mercy is mercy is when you don't get the judgment that you deserve upon your life or that you deserve. That judgment is withheld from you. That's mercy in our lives. We commit a crime and then we don't get punished for it. That's mercy. But grace, grace is when you get something, when you receive something that you do not deserve, that despite our crimes, despite our sinfulness, we're given love. We're given gifts and blessing. That's grace in our life. And we need both. And it's good to recognize when we have both of them being enacted in our life. That's what King David here, he's doing now to his people. He's being merciful to them, gracious to them. Because he himself knew how much he needed it. We know how much we need it in our lives. Isn't it funny? We ask so much, God, just have mercy on me today. Have grace. Oh, please, Father. But the moment somebody crosses us, it's like, kill him, God, kill him. <laughs> and that's how we are. We, we're just so quick with judgment. Brave judgment. The wrath of God on people. <laughs> but there's no mercy. There's no grace in their life for them, from us. So may our hearts turn into hearts that are just full of grace and mercy where it pours out on the others, where we learn to trust God that he's getting us through these situations in our life, that he's bringing us back home to himself, that wherever we go, 
no matter what the trial is, no matter what the burden, the sin, God is always with us. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. Now we could either be met by his love and accepting of his love and grace and mercy, or we can deny that and we can accept his chastening, his wrath, his punishment. Because like a loving father, when he sees his children acting up, he spanks them. So may we learn those lessons and may we continue to grow closer to the heart of God. Amen? Let's pray. Uh, Before we do pray, I I do want to make an announcement. Uh, This Sunday, we will be having service in the backyard. It's going to be warm, but we got the easy ups getting popped up. So come with your, your shades, come with your Bible, and get ready to be blessed and continue in our study in the book of Acts. Oh, uh, yes, the book of Acts. And we are also going to be having communion this Sunday. So be ready for that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. We pray and we ask, Lord, that you would just continue to Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Continue, Father, to to teach us to rely on you, not our own strength. May we look to build a legacy that is abiding in you, Lord, and not in this world, not one that will pass away, but one that can never be taken away from us, Father your son, Jesus Christ. May we look to be leaders, Lord God, amongst our family, amongst our friends, leading in love, leading in grace and truth. We love you, Father. We praise you and we thank you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.